Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 48 of the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. The title of today's interview is Romance Can't Survive Lyme, an interview with Natalie Sayer and Will Fleming. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guests are Natalie Sayer and Will Fleming. Natalie Sayer is a 27-year-old woman originally from San Francisco, California, and a graduate from Tulane University with a degree in public health. Will Fleming is a 27-year-old native of New Orleans, Louisiana, and a student at Tulane University School of Medicine. Natalie and Will met when they were 16 years old. After a few bumpy years, the 16-year-old summer fling developed into a serious romance because of Natalie's determination and Will's Southern charm. Upon graduating from high school, Natalie and Will attended college together at Tulane University. Will and Natalie had a great college experience until Natalie began to exhibit the symptoms of a tick disease toward the end of her junior year. Natalie's illness limited her ability to socialize and Will, a natural social butterfly, struggled with the gap between what he wanted to do and what Natalie was able to do. Will did not want to do stuff without Natalie, especially if that meant leaving her while she was in pain. Over the next six years, Natalie's illness required her to visit over 20 medical practitioners before she was diagnosed with a tick disease. Together, Will and Natalie learned about the failures of the medical system they had studied in college and in medical school. Despite Natalie's chronic illness, their relationship thrived and the couple grew closer. A few months ago on Natalie's birthday, Will got down on one knee in New Orleans Audubon Park and asked Natalie to marry him. After a short pause in between tears, Natalie accepted Will's marriage proposal. Hey, Natalie and Will, and welcome to the program. Uh, hello. <laughs> Hi. Can you folks share with us where you're from? So I'm from San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up 20 minutes south of San Francisco on the coast, and I'm currently living in New Orleans with Will. And I'm the New Orleans native. I grew up about 20 minutes outside of New Orleans, Louisiana. And you folks met while you were attending college? Well, we actually met when we were in high school. So both of our families were on a little vacation. And what started out as just a little vacation fling turned into a pretty <laughs> serious relationship. Wow. And Natalie, your dad allowed you to continue a relationship with a guy you met on vacation? <laughs> I mean, it was bumpy. Bumpy for a couple of years. I love my parents very much, and I thank them very much now for their patience and my 16-year-old determination mm -hmm. to live out this love story. And a little Southern charm goes a long way, too. <laughs> Did you guys decide to attend the same college because of that earlier connection you had made? It was definitely a big factor. Uh, we applied to a lot of the same schools, and then as things got, got closer to deciding, yeah, we chose the same school together. And where did you go to college? So we went to uh, Tulane in, uh, in New Orleans for undergrad. Natalie, what was your major while you were at Tulane? So I majored in public health and minored in psychology. And Will, what was your major at Tulane? I was an anthropology major uh, with the cell and molecular biology minor for the, the med school component of it. And Natalie, when you graduated from Tulane, did you start working? Yeah, so I had a couple different jobs in the nonprofit field. My last job was with an organization called CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates, doing community outreach and work with foster children and uh, community training. And Will, did you start working after you graduated from Tulane? Yeah, so I, I did a couple years of, of research, uh, doing clinical research with this cardiologist group. And then I did a post-bachelorate uh, after that, and then another year of sort of lab research before going, going back to school for medicine. And where did you do all of the clinical research and the post-baccalaureate educational work? So that all took place out in the, in the Bay Area of California. So, you know, Natalie spent four years out here for our undergrad at Tulane, and then we both moved back to the Bay Area. I lived in San Francisco for a year, and then we're, we're priced out a little bit. And then but stayed in the Bay Area, sort of near her family for the next three years. And Will, what are you doing now? So I am now entering uh, my second year of medical school at Tulane University's School of Medicine and just just enjoying it to the to the nth degree. It's as oppressive as it as it seems like it would be at times, but I'm I'm really enjoying myself. So Natalie, are you currently working? No, I do some writing, but right now my health is my full-time job, and I'm just trying to get back to a place where I'm well enough to work. Now, Natalie, when did you first begin to show the symptoms of what you now know to be a tick disease? So my symptoms started 
pretty slowly my junior year of college in 2012 I started to get more symptoms that would interfere with my daily life more migraines that lasted multiple days at a time fatigue brain fog sort of like different bouts of weird illnesses like bronchitis that kept coming back and stomach bugs things like that that was all in 2012 and and will what impact did Natalie's developing symptoms have on your relationship? Well, you know, it was it was sort of interesting because I think that we were both so in the moment when it started happening that we were almost in denial of it. And we we're like, okay, yeah, you're having a tough week or a tough semester. But, you know, I don't think either of us really conceptualized the big picture of how sick she really was until later on. And so we were, you know, we were just doing our thing, trying to make the best of it. And, you know, pushing through probably more pain and more discomfort than we should have. Natalie, when you first got sick in your junior year of college, did you see any doctors or did you just dismiss your symptoms as the stress of being in college and having a hard academic life? Yeah, so I didn't see any doctors outside of, you know, the general physicians at the Student Health Center. I did go see another, um, another primary care doctor to explore things a little bit further, but everything was pretty dismissed, you know, under being in school and living on my own for the first time and migraines being tied to hormones and changes in schedule and all that kind of stuff. So no aggressive meeting with doctors at that stage. Can you walk us through through the progression of your symptoms from the time you were 20 until you were 22 out of college and working? Sure. So when things started, when I was 20, sort of that second semester, junior year of college, I started to have symptoms interfering with my ability to go to class, to go out to certain events. Like I wasn't able to go out very late in the evenings. Definitely drinking alcohol started to be a problem and trigger my symptoms more and more. Large events, even vacations, everything just became a little bit harder. And I got used to, like Will said, pushing through a lot of pain. And that just increased in severity and frequency over the next two years. So I was really lucky to graduate a semester early, which kind of allowed me to keep keep myself functioning through college. During that last six months or last semester at school, I would pretty much rest most of the day to go out and do one thing with my friends or rest most of the day to go to the gym or to go do a couple hours of volunteer work. But I was pretty sick at that point and just hoping that once I graduated and moved back to California, we would quote unquote, figure it all out and get everything back on track. But by the time I graduated, I would say almost every area of my daily life was impacted. I was just pushing through and crashing to do the things that were important to me all the time. Well, during that two year window, as Natalie's symptoms were progressing, how did that affect you? Well, I would say that me personally, I'm a bit of a butterfly socially. And so I'm always, you know, looking to, to do as much stuff socially. And, and it's sort of interesting that we're a little bit different that way and that I really recharge when I'm in a group. And that, you know, the sort of the gap between what I wanted to do and what she was able to do grew sort of tremendously in that amount of time. And I do, I think that was a, a, a difficult thing for me to adjust to initially because I didn't want to be going to stuff without her, especially if I was leaving her while she was in pain, but I also didn't want to be missing out on stuff. And, you know, that was, that was a difficult thing for me to cope with. And I probably leaned on, leaned on a few things more than I should have. I think I, you know, I was definitely drinking a little bit more to sort of like cope with that than I, than I wanted to at that point. And we weren't having the conversations, I think, in that two-year period as things were really escalating that, that we needed to, to make sure that we were on the same page with what our priorities still were and how we were going to work together in the best way that we could. Now, when you say that you weren't having the conversation that you needed to have, is that because Natalie's stoic and she just was fighting through the pain and not sharing that with you? Or do you mean there were other types of relationship conversations you had to have? It was sort of like we were running into a wall and neither of us knew exactly what was going on. And at the same time, like we talked about, there wasn't like a real diagnosis that we could latch on to and, and work together as a team. So it was a little bit just like treading water where I think we were both together and committed to each other, 
but we weren't moving in a direction together that felt like, you know, that we had an, an endpoint or a goal that was shared between the two of us. Natalie, as time went on over these two years and your health declined, did not being able to be there for Will have a negative impact and add to the stress of your illness? Yeah, I mean, I think that that stress showed up in a lot of different areas of my life. It was really difficult for me to not be able to show up as the partner that I wanted to all the time or the daughter or friend or employee. And that was really hard for my self-esteem and my self-image. And I had always been a person who enjoyed going above and beyond for the people that I loved. So as my body started to limit my ability to do that, it was really, really challenging, especially when I didn't have the understanding or awareness of, you know, what was going on. I just felt that I was able to support people less and less, and I didn't know how to change that when I was struggling so much. Natalie, as time progressed, what doctors did you see, and what diagnosis, if any, did they give you? <laughs> Better question might be, what <laughs> doctors did I not see? I saw a bunch of different neurologists. My main symptom was migraine, so I saw private practice neurologists, and then I got passed up to different neurologists at the UCSF Headache Clinic and Stanford Headache Clinic. As my other symptoms worsened, I also saw gastroenterologists, urogynecologists, naturopaths, osteopaths, chiropractors, ENT, ophthalmologists. I really tried to attack whatever was going on from every angle I could think of and yeah, was not afraid to see new people and try to get more clarity and answers to figure out what was going on. At what point post-college did the symptoms force you to stop working? And can you walk us through what that experience was like for both you and Will? We both graduated from college and moved from New Orleans to San Francisco. At that point, I started working at an elementary school probably for about six months, which was extremely challenging. That was probably one of the lower points of my migraine journey. I was taking medication every day to get to work, taking medication every day when I got home from work, going to the emergency room every couple months when I couldn't control my pain with medication. And that ultimately was the first position that I had to leave because of my health. And then I spent a few months off working with different doctors at UCSF Headache Clinic and was able to start working again at CASA, kind of. Within the first week of being there, things had ramped up to a similar cycle where every day was just so painful and so challenging to get through. And then it was a long process of working there, taking different accommodations, shifting from full-time to full-time, partly working from home to part-time, partly working from home, all the way down to only working from home, and even from that point, my doctor ultimately recommended that I take medical leave because I was just completely unable to, you know, get through the day without health crises and overwhelming pain. And I had nothing left to give to any sort of work life. And it was extremely stressful to be trying to show up even in my reduced capacity when my health was so, so challenging and impacting every, every day. So, Will, while all of this was going on with Natalie, you were in the process of doing both some clinical work and some postgraduate work. Uh, what impact were Natalie's challenges having on the work that you were attempting to do? Yeah, this was a really, this was a really challenging time because I would get up and go to work and I know, you know, and I would be in contact with Natalie throughout the day. And, you know, I could almost predict at what point throughout the morning I would start getting those texts where, things are really starting to kick up like the lights are really starting to bother me i'm having to go to my car for 30 minutes just to like take a break i'm now now i'm crying in my car because i don't think i can go back in there and then you know so it was just it was so hard for me to to not be able to be there physically and support her because i was having to be at work or you know doing my postgraduate uh, responsibilities and then i would get home and you know, she would have to come home, get in bed, put ice on, and then take medication and be asleep by like nine o'clock. So that by the time I got home at six, it was like I was only seeing her for three hours a day. And it was, it was really challenging because it felt like if there was any sort of progress we were going to make, um, we just didn't have the time to do it. 
especially during the weekdays. And then during the weekends, it was, you know, what, what can we do to, to keep things from kicking up or spiraling, you know, spiraling down. So it was, it was really challenging. And, uh, you know, especially just with our schedules, it felt like that was, that was a time period where, you know, we might've felt almost our most lost. Well, because Natalie was going to all these doctors and she was not getting a diagnosis, did you ever question whether or not she really was as sick as she was claiming to be? You know, I, I, I didn't just because, and partly this is because I, you know, I knew Natalie for a, a few years before she ever got sick. And I just, I knew how tough she was and I knew what kind of person she is. And just, you know, I knew that there was so much life and vibrancy and just a desire to embrace the world and other people in her that I could, I could just see it written all over how, you know, not only how much pain she was in, but how ashamed she was of, of what she was putting everyone else through as well. And, you know, what her parents and I continuously tried to emphasize was that, you know, we love you so much and we want to support you so much that it will never be as bad for us as it is for you, whatever you go through. So for me, that was never, that was never a struggle that I had. I mean, it was the only things that came into my head were, okay, well, are you doing everything you possibly can to get better? But I knew that, you know, since we didn't know exactly what that looked like, how were we supposed to accomplish that anyway? So Natalie, at this time, all of your symptoms, your doctors felt, were coming from these chronic migraines. Did you ever feel that some of your symptoms were sort of atypical of migraine symptoms? Yes, it was really confusing. And at that time in my life, I definitely deferred to the professionals I was working with. I really trusted the neurologists and I did a ton of research. I watched hours of lectures on the Migraine World Summit and I was definitely aware of migraine being a neurological disorder and it's stemming from the brain and the ability that that can have to impact your central nervous system and your digestive system and all of these other parts of your body. So I was skeptical and concerned, but I was also willing to try and understand what I was experiencing through the lens that the professionals I was seeing were, were telling me to look at things. So it seemed atypical. Some of the things definitely seemed strange, or at least not totally in line with other migraine patients, but migraine does present so differently in every person that it wasn't beyond the stretch of my imagination that everything could be somehow tied to severe chronic migraine and the impact that that can have on the rest of your body. And we certainly put pressure on ourselves to, you know, be fully on board, you know, with whatever the diagnosis and the treatment was, because we thought that if we weren't absolutely 100% committed to what the diagnosis and treatment regimen was, then we weren't giving ourselves the best shot at getting better. But well, it seems to me that there was really never a diagnosis. So, uh, I mean, did there ever come a time where either you or you observed Natalie's parents wanting to walk into a medical office and say, what the F? I mean, this, this woman is sick. She's not getting better. I mean, did that kind of frustration boil over in you? Oh, absolutely. Really, the diagnosis was chronic intractable migraines, which is just, you know, it's, it's a symptom and a diagnosis, but it's just like, you know, that's really what we hung on to. And, you know, we're working at these ivory tower centers that have the top specialists and the top physicians in the world. And you want to put your faith into them and think that they've got the best intentions in mind for the person that you're watching go through so much. But I mean, absolutely. It was immensely frustrating to have three months go by since your last appointment and be like, well, we haven't moved the needle at all. And it's actually just getting kind of worse. So, but it, yeah, when you're, when you're so sort of deep into, into the system, it's hard to, it's hard to get perspective sometimes. Natalie, once you were home and not working and solely focusing on your health, did you improve at all or did your symptoms continue to get worse? So very frustratingly, things did continue to get worse. I talk about that period a lot and I say as I was getting worse physically, I was at least starting to get better mentally. Um, I took it upon 
myself to do whatever I could do to move, like Will said, to move the needle in a positive direction, even if that was exploring mindfulness and seeing a therapist to improve my communication skills and learning how to have better doctor-patient relationships and come to appointments as prepared as I could possibly be. So yeah, my physical symptoms were definitely declining, but I was at least growing in other ways that I think ultimately helped me to start to put the pieces of the puzzle together down the line. And this wasn't a short window. You first got sick in 2012. Things got really bad around 22 and you couldn't work. And things continued on up until last year. So this was a, about a six-year process. Yeah. And I mean, from 22 to 26, really, we put my health at the forefront, or at least I did. And I've been really supported by my family and Will. And yeah, that's been the focus to reclaim my health and to get back to better functioning and we have played the long game and seen so many people and just determined to not give up to know that it has to get better but yeah it's definitely been something not just a bad month or a bad semester or a bad year it's been a challenging couple years and I have to say, looking at your pre-interview questionnaire, you had a lot of classic Lyme symptoms. Any of your doctors at all recommend Lyme? No, I mean, it was never brought up, not in a primary care setting, not in a naturopath setting, not with some of the functional medicine doctors I worked with. The framework that everyone was sort of operating under was as new symptoms pop up, let's send you to another specialist to look into those deeper. So I gathered a very extensive team. I had specialists for every system in my body, it felt like, where I had symptoms, but nobody was looking at sort of the bigger picture. And Lyme disease was just not not even on the board as a possibility or something that might be contributing. About how many different doctors did you see over that six-year window? So I haven't counted them all up, but I would say absolutely 15 plus and probably closer to 20 plus. We saw so, so, so many different people. Um, we traveled around the Bay Area. We'd go from Santa Cruz to, you know, Marin and then even started traveling down to Santa Barbara and Southern California when we were living there to see different people with different backgrounds who might be able to look at it with a different angle. So a lot. So Will, your girlfriend is traveling from doctor to doctor to doctor. You're doing your postgraduate work and you're doing your clinical work, obviously preparing yourself to enter into that community or that profession. What were your feelings about the medical community and how it was treating your girlfriend? I mean, it was just overly disappointing. I think it was, you know, it's so tough when you get recommended to a new physician or practitioner because there's there's always that that modicum of hope that goes with it that you're thinking okay well maybe this is the stone that we just haven't turned over and and now we're actually on the on the right path here and and Natalie will tell you as well like I'm I'm an eternal optimist and I'm always trying to hedge my expectations whenever we do get shuttled to a, a new practitioner but it was just so blatantly obvious that there was you know, a disconnect between every every single one of them. And with the new electronic health record system, we're supposed to have like this greater continuity of care and, and, and ability for these physicians and practitioners to talk with each other even more. But it just felt like Natalie was having to tell her story to every new person every single time and start from the ground up. It felt like we were we were running in circles. So it was so disappointing, but at least for me, not disenfranchising because I felt like that we were learning so much on our journey and on the way there that I was seeing it as just hopefully a way that I could commute those skills and those lessons over to maybe what I would do in the future. Throughout the six year window, did you have to pay a lot out of pocket of expenses that were not covered by insurance? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, pretty much anything that has been alternative in any way or more extensive testing, especially gut and immune and stool, that type of testing, nothing has been covered by insurance. And a lot of things we've had to fight to get covered that happen. Finally, last year in December of 2018, you had found a doctor that diagnosed you properly with Lyme disease. Can you walk us through that journey, how you found that doctor and what that experience was like? Yes, I started my Instagram page 
several years ago and got connected to a community of people suffering from all kinds of different chronic illnesses across the world. And one of the things that people do talk about a lot is Lyme disease. I never really identified with it because I didn't think that it was something I was dealing with, but it was in my sphere. And one of the people I follow, Jordan Younger, the Balanced Blonde, shared really, really openly about her journey to a Lyme diagnosis, a little bit different than mine, but there was enough that was similar that it prompted me to reach out to her and then ultimately to reach out to her doctor to do just sort of a thorough, in-depth testing overview of what was going on in my body. I decided at that point, I was like, if I really do have all of these strange disorders that are not connected in any way, like gastroparesis, interstitial cystitis, chronic migraine, IBS, anxiety, the whole rap sheet I had accumulated, then I will find a way to deal with that. But if there's something going on that I'm missing, I want to know what that is. So I was really confident through Jordan's story and from talking to her that this doctor would be able to help me get that general overview. And I reached out to her and did some remote phone consults. And ultimately, she was able to order all of the testing for Lyme and all the various things she wanted to test along with that remotely. And yeah, that's how I found out. We had a call in late December after six weeks of completing all the tests. She gave me my Lyme diagnosis and went through everything else. And we got a lot of clarity in that one and a half hour phone call. What type of blood test did she use, Dr. I believe it was Dr. Erica Lehman from Los Angeles? What kind of what kind of blood test did she use to diagnose you? So she did blood work through the Igenix lab in California, and then she also did a bunch of blood work through LabCorp, just testing for other markers. I did test positive for Lyme disease through Igenix, but I know a lot of people don't test positive who do have Lyme going on. So she looked at every possible indicator and every possible test to get a really full picture of what was going on in my body. And those two, those two tests together painted a pretty clear picture of what was happening. What was your reaction when you first realized that you had Lyme disease? Were you relieved? Were you fearful? I was really overwhelmed. I was swaying between feeling really hopeful and really relieved to have more clarity to feeling really nervous and skeptical. I had been down so many different roads, but I didn't want to have my hopes raised too high. I was hesitant at first to sort of fully invest in Lyme disease because I I didn't know much about it. So I did a couple months of research and, you know, it took me it took me a little while to fully come around to accepting that this was what was going on in my body, to understanding what was going on in my body and threading it with everything else that was happening was a process. But yeah, it was a it was a whole bunch of feelings. It changed probably by the day and hour, those first few, first few weeks. Well, how did Natalie's Lyme diagnosis impact you? Well, I think she did a really good job describing sort of the emotional impact. I mean, it was sort of a, it was a ground shifting occurrence where, you know, I think we had even looked at the lab results before we had talked to the doctor and thought they were negative. And then when she, we talked on the phone, she was like, oh no, you are 100% a Lyme patient. You know, this is substantial actually. So it was an absolutely ground shifting experience. And then just trying to understand what that means for us going forward. I mean, like Natalie said, it was, it was exciting because it's like, well, does this, does this mean we found it? Does this mean that we can like actually start doing things that will make like real tangible impacts on our health? So at first it was, like she said, overwhelming and confusing. And, but I think the longer we sat with it, the longer we felt like in a real sense that this could be a, a path forward. So I'm assuming as Natalie was doing her deep dive online, you were doing your deep dive online. And can you tell me what you learned about Lyme disease that you didn't know before as the two of you were going through the deep dive on Lyme disease? It's a weird community out there because you do have camps that are sort of absolutely and objectively opposed to the idea of chronic Lyme. And I think both of us were really kind of anxious and nervous about that because we were somewhat familiar with that there is this bizarre contention going on. 
So I was actually really surprised to find the, the depth of research that had been done on chronic Lyme and just how widespread it was. And I found that that information was actually easier to access and find because I was very concerned when we got this diagnosis that we were going to have to go searching for data and information that supported her diagnosis and her condition and the probability and potential of her contracting this disease. But there was a, a ton of research out there about how widespread it is. And, you know, and even at Tulane, all of this research that had been done on finding these the spirit sheets, the, the Borrelia burgdorferi in all kinds of tissue, you know, for, for months and months and years after contraction. So I was actually shocked in a, in a good way. I was like, okay, this is not as, I don't know, taboo as maybe I, I initially thought it was. I think, I think we've come a long way in regard to the stigma, although in certain communities, and I think, you know, generally speaking throughout the world, there's still a, a big disagreement in the world about chronic Lyme, whether it exists or not. Have you guys experienced that trouble in moving forward with your treatment protocol? Yeah, so, uh, and I'll just speak on behalf of both of us. I think, like I said, we were really concerned to bring this up with a number of her physicians, such as her GP and her neurologist and, and gyno-urologist. And for the most part, we actually felt that it was received pretty well and that there was a lot of understanding. There wasn't, you know, some of, there was varying amounts of knowledge on many of their behalves where they just said, well, I don't know what that means. I know that it can cause inflammation and whatnot. But we actually found a good bit of support in just the medical personnel that we had begun associating ourselves with in New Orleans since moving back. And really, it's been stuff like, you know, recently with the New York Times article and some of these other big outlets that seem to have, you know, this open forum for opinions and whatnot that have been more of the, I guess, more difficult things that we've had to deal with. So, well, when in the movement between New Orleans and California did Natalie finally get her diagnosis? So that was, we were in New Orleans for about six months at that point, after we had moved back from California. And what caused you guys to move back from California to New Orleans? I got the position in the, in the medical school and, you know, Natalie was open to going back and she loved to be in here for, for undergrad. So she was on board. And so we both moved back here in July of 2018. Natalie, can you walk us through what your treatment plan was with Dr. Erica Lehman once you got diagnosed with Lyme? So we, we started to do some treatments remotely and tried to go after some of the less intense things, I guess, before starting Lyme-specific treatment. So we tried some treatment for candida, for balancing hormones, for reducing inflammation. I did a little bit of IV therapy here, like IV glutathione and Myers. But as we started my Lyme treatment, I was having a real increase in my urinary symptoms, so much so that I had to sort of put Lyme treatment on hold for probably two or three months and do some more aggressive testing and a bladder operation just to make sure that there wasn't anything else going on. As it turned out, everything is okay down there. I just have pretty severe interstitial cystitis symptoms from Lyme that make my bladder really sensitive to any of the herbal treatments and things that I take orally, which has been frustrating because it's delayed a lot of what we're able to do remotely treatment-wise, but we still have been able to move forward with adjusting my thyroid and trying to address leaky gut and some of the other GI imbalances and then working on home detox things as much as I can, doing castor oil packs, trying to go to infrared sauna, just trying to open up detox pathways in my body to prepare more for aggressive Lyme treatment. Once you started the actual treatment for the Lyme disease, once you got past those first couple of months, what treatment specifically did you get for the Lyme disease bacteria? I started taking oral antibiotics, which I went up on pretty slowly. That was something that I did remotely. I also started taking low-dose naltrexone right around that time, right after the bladder operation. And I'm trying to think because I've tried or started so many things over the past few months. But I guess Lyme specific for Lyme bacteria was really starting the oral antibiotics and then getting my body ready to go out and do ozone therapy and mm -hmm. stem cell and some of the other things I did in her clinic over the summer. Do you recall what oral antibiotics were you on? Was it just one type like doxycycline or was it a combination of oral antibiotics? 
Yeah, so I started on rifampin, actually, and I've been going up on my rifampin dosing. I haven't done doxycycline yet. We're sort of formulating our antibiotic plan, but given my symptoms and everything I was dealing with, that was the one she decided to start with. And it was probably one of the first things I had taken over 10 daily preventatives for migraine over the years. And within a couple months of being on rifampin, probably about a month, I started to notice a decrease in symptoms, like severe symptoms, that gave me hope that we were moving in the right direction. You also mentioned that you tried the low-dose naltrexone therapy. Can you talk about how that was helpful in your symptoms? Yeah, so I started that around the same time that I started rifampin. I was having some really, really bad dizziness and vertigo, some of the worst I had ever had. I was used to getting it in the midst of migraine attacks, but I started to have it more on a day-to-day basis where it would just hit me like a wave and I would be unable to really stand up or I'd lie down and everything would still be spinning. So taking those two things together helped immensely with my dizziness and vertigo, which helped a lot with everything else. And then regarding the LDN, I know that it is doing things for my body that are less easy to identify, working on pain receptors and cell health and inflammation and everything. So I think being on that has been a really positive, positive addition to my treatment for now. Well, now Natalie has found a doctor who has diagnosed her properly and she's beginning to treat and see improvement in her treatment. How has that impacted you and your relationship with Natalie? By the time she got the diagnosis and we started moving forward with it, I mean, Natalie and I, and just to roll back a little bit to what she talked about, sort of in that, in that two years of her health was getting worse and worse. I mean, she was growing so much more as a person in her ability to communicate and just like her gratitude practice and her mindfulness practice. We grew as a couple and everything. So we were absolutely on the same page as we started doing the treatment for, for Lyme disease. And you know, it was, like I said, I, I'm that optimist. And so I really wanted to remain cautiously optimistic throughout the treatment. And I think I'm still in that place right now of just like, just got into this mindset of keep the expectations low, but, you know, keep the hopes high. And, you know, that's, I think that's where we're still at right now is, you know, we've been doing this so long now that we know that there's no, there's no, it's not going to be a quick fix. And, you know, things aren't going to change one day to the next, but we feel very, very confident that we are where we need to be right now. So Natalie, I noticed in your pre-interview questionnaire that you also did ketamine infusions for pain management and anxiety. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so that was something that I did in Los Angeles at Dr. Lehman's office. I was really nervous about that specific treatment, and I found it to be really beneficial. I went in, like Will said, with pretty low expectations and just high hopes that there would be some positive change. And I had two different days of ketamine infusions. And I found afterwards, I was just able to process pain a little bit differently. It felt like there was a little bit more space between my physical pain and my reaction to being in pain. I did them in the middle of a pretty intensive two-week period of treatment, and I think that overall it was a really helpful tool to just lower anxiety, give my brain a little bit of a reset is one of the ways one of the doctors described it to me is when you're caught in chronic pain or chronic anxiety or chronic anything for so long, your brain does start to get into patterns and starts to loop in certain ways, so to interrupt that and sort of create space for new patterns to form was a really, really interesting experience and something that I think was really positive for me. And two months ago is the first time you actually went to go see Dr. Erica Lehman in person in LA, California. And in addition to the ketamine infusions, you did some other therapies while you were there. Can you talk about those? I did a bunch of different hyperbaric oxygen chamber sessions, which I do think really helped me. I was there for two weeks and at home, one of the appointments I did there would have been enough to take me out for like three days and cause me to need to stay home and recover. And I had a lot better stamina while I was there. I was doing the chamber. I was doing ozone therapy. I was doing methylene blue. I was doing vitamin D injections and vitamin B injections to balance out my different levels of things. 
I did an iron infusion, did stem cell therapy for the first time. So it was a lot of things. It's difficult to say exactly what each specific treatment might have done for me, but I left feeling so positive and so encouraged that it was really amazing to start taking actionable steps to feeling better and to start to get glimpses of what feeling better can look like and will look like. Even just a better 30 minutes or a better day or a better hour is all so hopeful at this point. Well, what have you observed about Natalie since she finished the short course of treatment she had at Dr. Lehman's clinic? Yeah, you know, it's sort of interesting. And like we've discussed a little bit, just with chronic illness, you never want to take anything out of context. But sort of the, the levels that we've discussed as like, you know, when you start feeling better, what are, what are the things that we're going to focus on first? And, you know, sort of that first, that first ring that we're going to reach for when Natalie is, is feeling better is just her, her physical ability to, to be healthy. And, you know, before she got sick, she was really, really into running and doing physical activities and her fitness and everything. And so that's going to be the, the first rung that we try to get to. And since we've been back, that's actually been able to be improved, I would say, is a statistically significant amount. So we have this little stationary bike in our apartment that Natalie maybe rode once in the in the prior six months before going to treatment. And I think it's been maybe six or seven times since we've been back, as well as been able to go and see, you know, her trainer once a week on a more consistent level. And, you know, before we try to do anything where we're increasing her her ability to socialize or to go out and sort of endure more stimuli, getting to that first rung has been so important for us. And so we're both feeling pretty, pretty good about that. Natalie, one of the things I'd like to learn more about is the stem cell therapy that you did. Some of our past guests have done it and had varying successes with it. What was that experience like and what were the expectations set by Dr. Lehman? Yeah, so it was really interesting. We hadn't heard much about it before she brought it up as a treatment option. And the way she explained it to us was talking to us about what stem cells can do and how they can function in your body. So I have a lot of bladder pain and urethra pain and a lot of issues, obviously, with migraine and brain fog and neurological symptoms. And the idea that stem cells are these undifferentiated cells that can go into your body and repair damaged areas and help to reduce inflammation and basically go where they are needed was really exciting to us. It's not a inexpensive therapy. It was something that we asked a lot of questions about and we really debated whether it was worthwhile because it's so new that there isn't very clear data that says three days after your stem cell therapy, you will feel better in this way or 90% of people feel better in that way. So we went into it informed but hopeful and I'm really glad we did it. The level of improvement I've experienced since we started all of these treatments is more significant than anything in the past six years. And I, I have to assume that it's from taking chances like that and trying things that are a little bit newer and a little bit less understood, but can be really, really powerful in helping the body to heal when it's been so damaged by something like Lyme disease. So now another question I have is so many of our listeners and people with Lyme disease have migraines. From your experience, what would be the recommendation you'd give them and the advice you'd give them for the best migraine hack? Oh gosh. Well, this comes up all the time in my social media. I think migraine wise, I can only speak for myself because migraine is so different and it presents so differently in everybody uh, with different symptoms and treatments work for people differently. But Getting yourself aligned with a neurologist who understands migraine, I think is one of the most important things you can do at the very least, starting to develop an acute migraine management plan, even if you don't get them chronically. I really feel like every migrainer deserves to have a tool in their arsenal that can help them to get out of level 10 pain when they're there. And a lot of people just take Excedrin or just take Advil or just try to sleep or do crazy things like put their feet in hot water and ice on the back of their neck and breathe through one nostril. I mean, there's just so much out there that seeing a doctor who has a background in treating migraine can give you a huge leg up. And then I think figuring out what works for you pain management wise, I have an entire portion of our freezer dedicated to ice packs of all different 
sizes and shapes and everything. And that's so important for me is finding ways to get through the pain, to make a very uncomfortable experience as comfortable as possible. So yeah, I would stock your house with whatever you need to endure a migraine more comfortably, whether that's heat or essential oils or ice or anything. But those two things are what I usually tell people. And another thing I noticed on your pre-interview questionnaire is that you mentioned the infrared sauna is helpful when your body can tolerate it. Can you explain that? Yeah. So for me, part of my experience with chronic migraine and with it getting more severe has been that most days I do have some level of baseline head pain that can be triggered and kicked up pretty easily. And I do find that infrared sauna is one of those things where if I have a low level migraine or even like a higher level baseline head pain, being in there for just 10 minutes can start to escalate pain really quickly. And then it's difficult to lower it back down. So I just have to be more careful with those types of things. And if it's a day where my pain is already pretty high, I have to choose to go do the infrared sauna another day. And there are some other things like that, you know, even getting on the bike for 10 minutes or I can't think of another example, but pretty small, usually not that significant for other people activities can be immediately triggering for my head pain and lead to migraine. So I just have to be more strategic about when, when I do them. So I also noticed that you've tried CBD oil. Has that helped you in any way? You know, I really want it to help me. Um, I have tried so many different brands and dosages and different carriers of CBD oil, and I haven't really noticed a significant difference yet from any of them. I do continue to try them, but it hasn't really been game changer in my healing, although I know it has been for a lot of people. So I know it's only been two months since you've actually been there on site with Dr. Lehman, but how are you today? So I think what I've tried to focus on since my time in LA is more the bigger picture of how I've been over the course of time since I've been back. I still am having days that are better than other days. I've had, you know, stretches of probably my best days in years. And then I've had stretches of really, really tough days that don't really feel like they're improving at all. But overall, I've had more energy. My pain has been a little bit more under control. I've been able to do some of the things that were not accessible to me before I went out and started the more aggressive treatment. So I think I'm, I'm walking down the right path. I just don't know how long that path is going to be or, you know, where I am, where exactly I am. But I feel definitely like I've taken a really important step forward. Will, you talked a little bit earlier about how Natalie went through a transformation where she became better at communicating her needs and her challenges during that growth period. Can you share with us how you've grown during this experience? I really try to take, you know, sort of a like our little Instagram, a co-pilot seat when it comes to being on top of everything that she needs to do clinically and, and medically and keeping track of the medications and, and when she's got appointments and everything and, and just talking it through with her and helping her rationalize it and make sense out of it all. I've tried my best to be you know, the partner and the support that I think would be the most helpful from her side as well. So Natalie, another one of the things that's happened from a transformational standpoint is that you two have decided to uh, become engaged. Is that correct? We have freshly engaged, well, mm -hmm. a couple months now, but. So can you share with us how that happened and what that experience was like? Well, yeah. So, so we had been, we've been dating now for, you know, this September will be like 11 years. So a lot of people will say, well, there's no way she would have been surprised to get engaged, but I had actually built up like a pretty immaculate reputation for never planning anything. And her birthday was coming up. And so she kept on saying, like, are you gonna, like, are you going to do anything for it? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But what I had done is actually, you know, I'd been talking to her parents now for several months, asked for their permission, you know, to, to get engaged and to marry their daughter and had them fly out secretly the night before her birthday when she was unaware. And then there's this park in, in New Orleans called Audubon Park, and they've got this 
nice clubhouse with this back courtyard and everything. And I, I made sure to reserve it for a couple hours and got some nice flowers and whatnot. And uh, I told Natalie because I needed an excuse. And so this was sort of the challenging part is because I needed a reason for her to get kind of dressed up. You know, we don't go out to dinner and do big events like that because, you know, it's just not practical with her health the way it is right now. But I thought, okay, her birthday is a great cover to get her to dress up a little bit and to, you know, be a little bit or to emphasize a little bit more how much I want her to go to something. So I said, you know, there's going to be tea at this clubhouse at 6 p.m. And she was like, well, that's a weird time to have tea. And I said, yeah, I know, but it's a it's a summer thing. It'll be fun. And so, you know, we showed up to this place and walked into the back courtyard. And as we got up there, her parents and my mom came down from the back patio. And I think, you know, a few neurons started connecting in Natalie's brain and she started realizing what was happening. And then when she went and hugged her parents and said hi to them, that's when I got down on one knee and she turned around and then I asked her the question and she took a you know, good few seconds to answer between the tears, but it worked out really well and she was very surprised. So Natalie, why was the uh, engagement such a surprise to you? I mean, yeah, I think Will and I have had so many conversations. It's not like we, we've been on the same page about our relationship and how important we are to each other and the life that we want to create for a long time. And we've been like ideologically engaged. We talk about our future children and our home and being old people together, but it was still a really really moving milestone and to have it happen when I was in such a physical rock bottom was just so so overwhelmingly loving and you know a lot of the work that I've done on healing has been affirming my worth outside of my illness and the values in my life, like my family and like my relationship with Will that I can still pour my love into even while I'm sick and even while I'm healing. That's something that I've really worked to make a priority. So this was just a huge step forward in that regard. And like Will said, we launched Clinical Copilot because we really feel like we're teammates. I don't feel like I'm the sick one and he's the healthy one. I feel like we are just navigating this challenge together right now. And to be officially engaged and doing that has been, yeah, it's just been really exciting. It's been really, really, really positive. And he did a great job of making it as special as it could be. Thank you. <laughs> so, so, Will, can you uh, share with us that part of your now outreach? You, you, the two of you are now giving back to the community that has given so much to the two of you. We know that Natalie is crediting uh, social media with giving her the tools she needed for her diagnosis. And the two of you have now gone through a joint transformation where you're now participating in outreach. Can you share with our listeners uh, how that came to be? Yeah, you know, it's it's really been amazing, Natalie's involvement with the social network that she has been. I just see day in, day out how much support is given, you know, to her and how much support she gives others. And, you know, she was always receiving these messages from people about how how much impact her message had on on their lives. And I was just like, well, I mean, what is more rewarding than that to be able to use the, the tools and the lessons that you've that you've learned and have gone through and share them with other people? who can feel so isolated and alone and, and that they, you know, that nobody else is going through the same thing. And it's just so immensely powerful. And one day when we were driving to an appointment, you know, we were talking about, you know, sort of the team that we have and, and how, you know, the, the word caretaker gets thrown around a lot and it just doesn't feel like the right term to use to describe, you know, my, myself in relationship to Natalie, because that's such a, a unilateral direction of, of help and compassion and love when really it's such a it's so much more unified and so you know we came up with the the co-pilot thing and that we both rely on and help each other so much and Natalie was like well I think it would be so vital for you for your voice to be out there as the person as the co-pilot who is helping me go through this because you know there's this uh, you know beautiful community of people who are going through it but, you know, what about the network? What about the other people who want to who wanna be better support systems and who don't really know how to navigate that? And I was just like, you know what? 
all we can do is share our story and what has worked for us and you know what hasn't worked for us through our through our own little trial by fire and you know, if people like it and it resonates with them then yeah keep subscribing and keep following and we'll keep putting stuff out there that you know that has made a big difference in our lives one of the things, Natalie, we've seen during the course of the 50 or so podcasts that we've done is that many relationships have ended because someone was suffering from a chronic illness. And I'm wondering if, Natalie, you're now trying to reach out to the folks in your community to help them discover the resources they need to keep their relationships intact. Yeah, I mean, I think a huge problem in the chronic illness community and in providing support for people who are suffering from chronic illness is we feel like if people really love us, then they'll know how to support us and that the people who love us most will just know what we need and know how to show up for us in the best way possible. And something that we've learned through this journey, not just the two of us, but even with my family and my friends is providing support to someone going through debilitating chronic illness is not always intuitive. It's not always straightforward. You can love someone so much and not really be sure how to show up for them when they're going through something like this. Even the person going through illness might not know what type of support to ask for, which can make it even more complicated. So we talk about that all the time in our relationship. And I feel really grateful because I've had, as I mentioned earlier, I've worked with a chronic pain psychologist. I've had an amazing health coach who's helped me to sort of navigate some of this boundary setting and finding your voice and all of these practices and coping skills that can completely transform your relationships. And it makes sense that relationships end when chronic illness enters the picture when couples or friends, you know, relationships in any way, friendships, relationships with family, if you don't have the right tools and the skills for how to communicate through this problem that can take over almost every area of your life, yeah, there are definitely going to be casualties in the form of relationships. So I've been so empowered by learning how to save the relationships in my life that mean the most to me by improving our skills and communication and ability to show up for each other that I want nothing more than to help other people in my position do the same thing because Nobody goes through this alone. There are always people in your circle who love you and who are experiencing it in some way themselves. And it's just important to talk about. I want to thank both of you for creating this resource because I think it's a terrible thing that people have to go through the challenges of Lyme disease and chronic Lyme disease. And then in addition to that, lose someone that they care about while in the throes of that challenge. And if anyone can benefit from the resources that the two of you are putting out into the world, I think it's a wonderful thing. So I thank you both for sharing what you're sharing and taking the time to do this outreach. We love doing it. I mean, we've been through, been through it. So we would like to share it and help others navigate it a little more easily. Absolutely. So, well, I have another question I have to ask you, and it's uh, it's a, probably a question that we asked a little bit earlier. You're entering into a community that is the most expensive medical community in the world. And you've watched mm-hmm. Beyonce and her family spend probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in care before she could get to the point where she is properly diagnosed and not properly treated. How does that make you feel? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think it's, it's something that we talk about a lot, actually, because we realize how you need to be fortunate in the way that, you know, Natalie is to get to this place that that she's able to get to. And it's just, I mean, it's unbelievable what resources are, are not available to so many people that need these resources. And I mean, it's, it's actually pretty sickening and, and, and just disappointing because you know that there's these enormous communities that can't get access to the type of help that they really need to, to get not only get treated, but to even get diagnosed. I mean, the diagnosis process itself was outlandishly expensive. And so, I mean, you know, it's something that I see as a, as a huge problem and an enormous social disparity. And it's across all sorts of different avenues of, of healthcare, especially in this country where, you know, access is, is not guaranteed. And, and it's, and it's really, it's, it's very sad actually. 
So, Will, one last question on the medical community. Can you outline the top five points of failure you, you observed in Natalie's interaction with the medical community? Yeah, I think that, you know, and here, here comes the, the bias from, from our experiences right now. I do think that when you get into, and these are in no order whatsoever, but just some things that come into my head immediately is the communication between different specialties um, and specialists. And I alluded to this earlier, how with all of the modernization of healthcare health, we still don't have that ability to, to really share records. And I mean, it's just like I've seen, you know, Natalie and her parents and myself on the phone for hours just trying to get records sent to one other a healthcare facility, it can just be just such an enormous pain. And then it's like, we're starting over with each new specialty. That initial diagnosis and how much that biases and frames, you know, whatever the next specialist is, is looking at the patient with, instead of, you know, approaching it from a brand new perspective and saying, okay, well, everything that has been said about you on one side and on the other side, I'm approaching you from a fresh perspective and trying to look at you in a, in a, different framework that isn't biased or isn't through the lens of your previous diagnoses. A third one, I think that when you get into these, like really the, these, what I sort of call these ivory tower establishments, it's the ability to maybe work outside of your traditional framework is reduced dramatically. And so they, they, they don't, they don't want to look for another diagnosis. They don't want to maybe think that, that they were wrong or, or go back to square one. And, and that's just, that's so disappointing. And then I, you know, another one was just, you get these, these physicians who are just so cavalier with what they think is going on and will fit everything, you know, and this is just a problem that we've run into as well. And then when they, when they don't know what's going on and they're like, okay, well, yeah, you know, it probably is the, the Lyme disease. And so it's this diagnosis of exclusion where once they can't figure out what's going on, then they'll accept that you have Lyme disease, or then they'll accept that, you know, you've done these tests and you kind of, you know, what's going on with your health more so than they do. And, you know, they, it, that's another problem is they'll always act like they know more about your health until they don't. And then, and then it's just like, oh yeah, well, you know what? It is probably Lyme. So uh, go get that taken care of. So those are, those are a few things that, that come to mind just with our sort of journey and movement through the system. Natalie, we've now gotten the medical perspective on the uh, challenges that you face. I want to talk to you about it from the public health perspective. As a uh, student of public health and as somebody who has a degree in public health, what were your perspective on the failures uh, that you had seen? Oh, gosh, this could probably be a book <laughs> exclusively on, on that. But I think that something we talked about a little bit earlier is a major issue with just the dynamic of a doctor-patient relationship and where the patient is being treated as a teammate with the doctor and being treated as an equal and where what the patient has to share is valued. I think that that's pretty rare or I have found it more uncommon in my experience working with so many different people that it's really important. Like Will said, you know your body better than anyone. There are the medical professionals, but if someone isn't listening to your side of the story, it can really, really impact care and really impact progress. And that's something I saw across so many different specialties and naturopathic clinics and traditional offices and everything. So I think shifting the culture between the doctor and the patient really is something that's important, especially in chronic illness management that isn't always straightforward and can take a long time. That relationship can make or break the type of care that you're receiving and the progress you're making. One of the last patterns of transformation we've seen while doing this podcast is the transformation uh, relating to ticks and tick diseases. And we've actually come up with a name for you folks. When you go through this transformation, we now call you tick hackers. And tick hackers are people who recognize that their defenses had been hacked by ticks. And as a consequence of their defenses being hacked by ticks, where a tick could grab you, could bite you, could feed on you, could leave you. Oh, and by the way, leave you with a whole cocktail of viruses and bacteria and pathogens. You now know a great deal about that. And I'd like to ask you first, Natalie, as a tick hacker, what would you do differently 
knowing what you know now, if you woke up tomorrow morning and you found a tick biting you on the leg? <laughs> well, yeah, before this, I probably would have done nothing special. Like I would have picked it off maybe with my fingers and put it in the trash and continued on my day. Now I would, I would probably go on social media and reach out to some of my Lyme gurus just to confirm, but use a pair of tweezers, remove it by its head. I would put it in a plastic bag and reach out to my doctor and find out the best place to send it for testing. I think if you're lucky might be the wrong word, but if you <laughs> find a tick on yourself and you're able to remove it and get it tested, you're already miles ahead of a lot of people who might get bit by a tick and not find it and not see it and not even know, then I would be watchful for symptoms directly after and follow the advice of my doctor. But I just, I grew up in Northern California in the hills off the coast where we had so many ticks. I mean, all the time, whenever we came in from the backyard, there were ticks on someone or on a dog and I never thought twice about it. So just being armed with information, I think is the most, most powerful thing we can do for ourselves. And to know, I'm not scared to go outside. I'm not scared to go on a hike. I can't wait until I have the energy to do those types of things again. But I will definitely be more informed. And I hope that more people will be too moving forward, because that's the first step in making a real change. It's a professional tick hacker answer right there. <laughs> and it was perfect. You guys need hats. You need tick hacker hats. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Natalie Sayre and Will Fleming. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Natalie Sayre and Will Fleming and their tick disease journey, please visit their Instagrams at clinicalcopilot and mindfulmigraine. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp Podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite Blueprint. It has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to visit the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your past comments. We would appreciate it if you would take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.